Peace, peace, and welcome to another edition of Cook on Monday Morning at Cook on Monday Morning. We are building lives and make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. Today, I have Mr. Yusef Freeman, a good brother uh, that's doing really interesting housing work in the Bay Area. We've crossed paths a number of times. Uh, he is one of the last black men in the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's always been really uh, friendly, generous, supportive. Uh, he is also something of a, of a watch connoisseur. He's been putting me up on game the last few times we, we've spoken. I'm, I'm new to the, to the intricacies of that whole space. So I look forward to get, getting to know more about him, his upbringing, his career, uh, his insights as a parent, what he's been doing since the pandemic has started, and talk more about other various topics that may come up. Mr. Freeman, thank you, Seth. Good sir. to see I appreciate you. you. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate you too. So is the is the Freeman last name? Is that like is that like is there a story behind that or I'm sure there is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the one of the crazy things about you know lineages we are uh descendants of, of slaves is you know we've spent a bunch of times trying to trace our roots and get back and understand the lineage. And I've been only able to go as far back as my great grandfather's father. And the crazy thing about that is I knew my great grandmother. I, <laughs> I remember spending time with her. She, she passed uh, when I was in elementary school and, you know, I visit her every summer. And so the fact that I can only go, you know, two gener or one generation beyond who I knew in person is is kind of sad. Um, but you know, the Freeman name obviously, uh, well, I would assume obviously was taken by the first generation of uh, no longer being in bondage somewhere down in Alabama or Mississippi, mm -hmm. which is where the my my roots are on my uh, my father's lineage. And what does Yusuf mean? Yusuf is just Joseph in Arabic. And, okay. um, you know, both of uh, both my parents are, are black. Um, you know, my dad used to say, if someone asks you your ethnicity, you can tell them you're half African-American, a quarter black and a quarter Negro. <laughs> but <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just that's that's who we are, where we're from. And my parents really enjoyed the music of Yusuf Latif. And so I was uh, named after him, jazz musician out of Detroit. Mm. When I was in grad school, I had a, a little radio show called The World is Funk uh, when I was at NYU. And I would start every show with uh, a cut from Yusuf Latif, my namesake. Was your show a jazz show? It was more kind of global funk. So okay. some jazz would get in there, but oh. it was mostly funk from you know, 1960s through uh, current times. So it, was a, it was a good time. It was Sunday afternoon. Got a decent uh, amount of uh, uh, listeners back then, long yeah. time ago. That's the love making hour, man. Sunday. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he was all, you was all with the folk, with the, with the, it's only right. It's the, that's righteous. <laughs> so, all right. So uh, I kind of skipped over. Do you know the story of Joseph in the Bible? 
I do. And then there's the story of, of Yusuf in the, uh, in the Quran as, as, as well. Okay. I don't know the one about Yusuf in the Quran. What was, what's, what's so, <laughs> a little bit of pressure that coming with the name. So apparently <laughs> the, the, the prophet Yusuf was, was so beautiful that when the queen of Sheba was preparing the, the meal, um, she actually cut her finger off uh, because she was captivated by his beauty and didn't pay attention to what, what she was doing. So a <laughs> little, little wow. pressure with that. I, I, I wish I could uh, be on, on those levels, but uh, I learned that when I was studying in Egypt and people, I would introduce myself and people would say, oh, do you know the, the story of Yusuf from the Quran? Uh-huh. Well, they probably said that because you're very handsome. You're very handsome. Oh. So probably, <laughs> that's probably why they were like, if you weren't attractive, they were like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> take it. I'll take it. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting part about that is that, you know, there is this story about in, in, the, in the Joseph story, the biblical story about him being falsely accused of uh, rape by the queen's, by the pharaoh's wife. And like she really wanted him and he was like you know not engaging because he worked for the pharaoh and then she accused him of rape and then he was sent to prison and so that joseph must have been attractive too uh, he was something to, he, there you he go. drew people to him <laughs> it's probably the same story i mean you know these religions are mm-hmm. rooted in the same places and you know islam is viewed as a as a progression of you know the the people of the book, if you will. I'm I'm not Muslim. I I'm a a, a Baha'i, which also believes in progressive re- revelation and views Jesus and Muhammad and Moses and mm-hmm. our latest uh, Baha'u'llah, all as manifestations of of God or prophets of God. So, mm-hmm. you know, all these religions are really rooted in the same place. It's it's amazing we keep fighting each other over it all over the world. Yeah, this is the most I've ever talked about faith on the podcast. I appreciate Sorry, it. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I swear we're going to get into your, your upbringing. So I, we, right heard a little bit, we heard a little bit already. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I'm originally from East Oakland, uh, out by Eastmont Mall, but uh, grew up a lot in Sacramento. Um, my, my dad was working for the state and was commuting from Oakland on a daily basis to Sacramento, and it got to be too much, so we headed that way. and. Ended up uh, growing up out there. Are you only child? I am. What area of Sacramento? So, uh, Southside. So Southside. near Florham Mall for those who are familiar with, with Sacramento. Got it. Or where Florham Mall used to be, I should say, got demolished. Mm-hmm. What were some of the, it sounds like there was intention, you know, just in, in your name, right? Between your parents, like, you know, was did that carry over into the types of lessons they tried to impose on you or the type of lifestyle that they led? Like, what was the, or your parents like, what was your upbringing like? Yeah. You know, growing up as crazy as this might sound was, was, was pretty easy for me. And, and to this day, I, I don't have a full appreciation of why I grew up sharing the same expectations for myself as my parents had for me. And that's sort of a magic that happened with, within our, our family um, that I would love to be able to also have with, with my children, but I don't, I don't know how or why that is. 
Um, my mother very much dedicated her life to my happiness and success, taking jobs that would allow for a schedule so that I could get to my various sports practices, classes, extracurricular activities. I was a musician, things like that. I, I had a lot of opportunity from, from that standpoint. Um, and my father, during most of my childhood, uh, worked for the state of California. He initially was running uh, disaster response for emergency medical services for the state, which um, if he was still in that role today would have been very interesting during the pandemic. And um, my, and then he became the uh, first head of the uh, state's office of multicultural health. Mm -hmm. So he was a, uh, a career uh, bureaucrat before becoming one of the original executives of the uh, California Endowment and Philanthropy. And then he went off to do his own consulting. And um, before he unfortunately um, uh, became ill with uh, early onset dementia and Alzheimer's, some of the last work that he was doing was working with uh, multi-ethnic health organizations throughout the state of California and spending a lot of time working in uh, rural uh, American Indian clinics on on reservations and helping for their uh, health system disaster preparedness. Um, and unfortunately, uh, uh, we buried my my father uh, last month. Um, he he succumbed to uh, the the illness of Alzheimer's, which was accelerated due to the due to the pandemic. Um, my mother is still extremely fit and focused and uh, retired from the county of Sacramento. Um, and my 95-year-old grandmother lives with her. And she's got five sisters that are all in Northern California. And, uh, you know, the family is, is, is doing well. I, I remember in one of our text conversations, you told me about your father and rest in power to your father. Um, Appreciate it. Sounds like a great man that gave a lot and, uh, and did a lot of important work. Um, was was there? Did they have mantras or sayings like that they repeated? Did you have a household like that or no? You know, <laughs> um, yes, yes and no. Uh, so my my mother had a knack. So I'm 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 like six five, uh, mm -hmm. and I know I'm not your. I was like, I was like, get to your height. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know I'm not your your, your tallest guest, um, uh -huh. but uh, <laughs> brother Brandon uh, right. had me. Uh, destroyed on that level but my mother had a knack when i was a child of getting me to do whatever she wanted by telling me if i didn't it would stunt my growth and for whatever reason i wanted to be tall when i was a little kid and so i would you know kind of pivot and do whatever she said because i didn't want i didn't want my my growth to be uh stunted uh -huh. um <laughs> I, but you know i my mother in particular i i would say that is as much as I want to be almost exactly like my father and and look up to him, um, it, it was really the values from my mother uh, that she instilled upon me that I I think led to you know what I've been able to uh, achieve in life thus far, and a lot of that was really kind of subtly rooted in in understanding my my blackness. And that not, not that I would necessarily have to work harder than others, but that I'd have to do it better. 
Um, and so, you know, putting no judgments because certain things come easier or harder to folks. So not putting a judgment on what's hard and what's not. And really an expectation that you shouldn't have an expectation that life would be easy. I mean, she would always say life is hard. <laughs> and I think fundamentally, like, as tasks are before me, I don't, I either don't consider them to be hard or I don't have an expectation that they shouldn't be because maybe my mother did instill that in me, um, that, that life is, is hard, but, um, that, you know, there are people in this world who are going to get things just because of what they look like or who their parents are and recognizing I shouldn't be intimidated by that because they have it not necessarily through effort or hard work or because they deserve it just because of circumstance. And so once you put that away and there's no intimidation because you look different or anything like that, it's just sort of like, okay, you have this path to get there and it's possible to cross that path. So just go do it. Yeah. You, you mentioned, you mentioned achievement and, and the path. And um, it sounds like, you know, you had, parents that were devoted to their work and, and the broad way that you talked about their careers. Was there a, you're an only child, was was there like a moment where you were like, uh, um, I could be better or you, you, you were like, I wish I was better, like coming up in your childhood? Was there like a, a pivot or were you just always like, I got to be the best? Like, how do you, how, how did that show up for you growing up? Again, sort of with the shared expectations, there was always a path that, you know, being raised in a, in a way, even though, you know, we weren't wealthy by any means, but solidly middle class with both of my parents having two very good, you know, government jobs, that there's no difference between graduating uh, middle school and going to high school than graduating high school and going to college. It wasn't like this big thing. It's just sort of what you do next. And, you know, they came up though in a, in a time where it's like, okay, there's not a lot of specialization. Um, you know, you go to college and you can study anything and then sort of figure it out from a degree standpoint. And, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, but even in my generation and then even more so, you know, with, with yours, that there's a lot more special specialization now. So for example, there was no such thing as a master's in public health when my father was coming out of, of school, but so he didn't have that type of degree, degree but, he, but he got to run the office of multicultural health for the state. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure you have to study public health now to have that kind of role. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still was just in the mentality of just, you know, keep going to school, kind of get your education, study what's interesting, and you can figure out the the other part when it when it comes to to that time. And then in retrospect, I probably wouldn't give my children that that same advice because I think there's a little more specialization now and it's kind of more important the content what you what you study if you have an interest in a particular career. Would you consider yourself competitive? Absolutely. And that competitive, you said that was so such conviction. Oh yeah. <laughs> let's, let's oh yeah. That. Like how did that oh, how yeah. did that start? Like what what is when we when did you first recognize like I have to win, I hate to lose? Like what is there a story behind that? It goes from from sports to to board games to 
uh, to to grades on stuff that uh, wasn't subjective. So, you know, there's a guy who uh, was the best man of my wedding. He's been my best friend since kindergarten. And uh, uh, he just had his first child uh, earlier this week. And I can remember, you know, in elementary school and in, in junior high, like, okay, what did you get on this math test? Like, we're, we're jockeying there, you know, I'm playing sports, um, competing against others, but also, also competing against, you know, myself. Um, uh, the, the sport that I had the, the, the most success in growing up was, was swimming, and I, and I swam in college until my sophomore year. And, you know, with that, it's, a, it's about improving your own times and having your own personal records and going out the next time. And can I be a little bit faster here, a little bit faster there? And just the, the you know, the single focus during training to improve and just get, and in some cases, you know, there's a huge difference between being a, a second faster and some races a tenth of a second faster could be the difference between getting a scholarship or not. And just that drive um, and that monolithic focus was was a big part of my identity, I would say, from like age 10 when I really first started competing through my my sophomore year in college. And so was that the goal in high school, get a scholarship? It was, yeah. And where did you do your under, undergrad? Uh, a lot of places. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, uh, I I got a scholarship to, to swim at Fordham University in New York, which is a small Division oh, One yeah. school in the Bronx. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I went out there, and they had um, they had a, a black assistant coach, and they had two other uh, black swimmers from California. And I would I roomed with one of them, and I I made it three semesters out there, and it was cold and it was uh-huh. dreary. And so middle of sophomore year, I, I transferred to uh, UC Berkeley. Um, got lost on campus my, my first semester there, stumbled into the study abroad office and ended up in Egypt for my junior year, played on the uh, American in U- University in Cairo's basketball team, which was a blast. Um, came back uh, uh, that summer, studied at University of Washington under the, the PPIA fellowship and then finished my last year at Berkeley after that. So also, uh, had some PPIA? summers in community colleges and all that. Uh, public policy and international affairs. It's okay. this it was this great fellowship program that was targeted toward people of color who are interested in public policy or international affairs. And there were a number of uh, sponsored universities around the country where you spend the summer after your junior year of college uh, studying urban planning, international affairs, public policy. And then after you graduate, they'll pay for you to study kind of any project you want. So I ended up going to Morocco and studying Arabic out there that summer. And then they pay for your grad school. And I ended up at, at NYU. So it was a great, great opportunity. It's gone through a few different uh, forms. Uh, at one point, it was called the Woodrow Wilson Fellows. Um, and then it had another name as well that I I, I don't remember. But I've met a number of folks uh, over the years um, and actually had a boss that was uh, an alum of the uh, original uh, iteration of, of the program, which, which really helped in, in that job that I had for 12 years. Yeah. You, all right. So I want to get into Cairo. 
I want to get into leaving swimming. Um, and I want to talk about uh, UC Berkeley. So of those three, where, where you want to start? <laughs> oh, man. I, we, well, I guess we can go in order. Le- leaving swimming is, is fine. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so swimming is the catalyst. You like, it's like the, the, you want to get a scholarship, you get the scholarship, you're swimming. Yep. Okay. What happens? What happens? So go out to Fordham. Everything's going great. Freshman year. And then just some weird kind of physical stuff happens and my strokes kind of break down. I'm not going as fast as I used to. And it was, you know, at that age, you're just supposed to be getting better and better. And while I was in ridiculous shape, like I I still laugh at like being, you know, at the time, 6'4", 205, 4% body fat, you know, but slower than when I was a buck 60 blowing the wind skinny in high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so it just, it just wasn't, wasn't working out for me out there. And, uh, and then when that, that winter hit, uh, even though I would go back to the East coast a couple more times after that, I just wasn't ready for that. Um, so I decided to, to come back to the bank. Yeah. That's one of the things that you often, or that I associate with swimmers is being like in great shape and not like, especially like really muscular but like really fit and yeah and i i don't swim well uh, that's <laughs> like i like i tried to do a triathlon and okay try, which one <laughs> which, which triathlon <laughs> so i i attempted a half iron man in new orleans and oh i know that one it couldn't get through the swim so I never. So we gotta. So we gotta talk later because we. So you we, can tell me. So we gotta talk later. And, and you're a brave man for attempting to swim in Lake Pontchartrain. I'll tell you. I'll tell you that. I, I I spent a solid three four years of my life going down to New Orleans uh, every week between Tuesday and Thursday, and was gonna do that triathlon myself until I saw the swim was in the lake. <laughs> All right. So quick story about that because yeah, they it was it was like thunderstorming. The, the leading up to the race, the night before, they said they were going to cancel the swim. And the swim was the part I knew I was going to have the most trouble with. So I was like, okay. yes. <laughs> and, they, and they said they were going to cancel it because um, of the storm and the levels of fecal matter in the water. Right. That's right. That's why I remember. Yep. <laughs> had increased to a level that was no longer safe. So this was yes. like 11 p.m. And we got to get out there like at 4 a.m. something early. And yep. then by the, on the way there, they say the swim is back on. <laughs> so like the mental flips. Nope. <laughs> I was like, oh, nope. there's fecal matter. Fecal matter, cool. yeah. I, I completely remember that. What, what year was this? Do you remember what year that was? This was, this must have been 2015. This is 2015. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was after I looked at it. But that whole fecal matter thing had been an issue for the swim of that race even back when I was looking at it in like 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. uh, when I was going down there every week, I, yeah, I, I did triathlons for, for a minute my, my, myself, but I had to retire from, from that. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to get into that too. Cause you seem like the person that like, you know, stays active. So, all right. So do you think it was at all connected to anything that's related to like sports psychology or you think it was like purely body related? It's a, it's that's a question I was never actually able to figure out, and it's and it's the strangest thing because you know my in basically my entire life I had a certain feel for the water, 
And when I first got to campus and was competing, I was doing very well. And, you know, I don't know if it was because the weight training changed and my body was changing. And so my feel for the water was changing, which was expect, um, which was uh, changing my, my feel for the water. I, I, I really don't know, but I'm sure it's all wrapped in there together. And I did my best to figure it out. And to this day, I mean, I still get out and swim for fitness. Um, before I had a couple of, uh, back surgeries, I, uh, I was competing masters at a, at a pretty good level and locally kind of won, won some races. Um, but I never got that, that feel back that I had when I, when I first stepped on, on campus. And so I don't know if it's a physical or a psychological thing, but it's probably a mixture of both. Yeah. I have a theory. Yeah. It, it was Let's women. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> Lord knows there wasn't uh, that type of distraction for me in high school, unfortunately. Yeah, women so. messed you up, bro. That's what happened. There you go. That's, that's probably a nah, we won't blame it on that. All right, so go. so I, I went to Cairo last year for the first time. I was there oh, for like, like two or three days. Yeah. And it was during Ramadan. Okay. But like Cairo was incredibly overwhelming. It was just like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so right. seeing the pyramids was worth it, but it was a struggle. Okay. So sure. you said you were there for a year. Yeah. All right. So talk about that because I'm so interested. Yeah. <laughs> a, an absolute amazing year. Uh, I'm still extremely close with uh, some of the friends that that I met, met out there. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things because, as, as you said, it's it's extremely overwhelming depending on the, the calculation it can be counted as, you know, a top three most populous city in the world. It's definitely densely populated. There's folks that clearly don't get counted uh, there because just the infrastructure isn't there to, to do that. So the estimates of population really fluctuate. And what I, what I would say from the experience and sort of getting used to it is, you know, I got there was extremely overwhelmed. I was probably uh, being taken advantage of by all kinds of, you know, <laughs> different folks paying too much for my cab rides and everything else. And then after being there for a couple of months, then you truly know you're being taken advantage of, but you don't know how to kind of play it. <laughs> and then from there, you know, you just learn how the city works. And it's an amazing, amazing place where you know, you can get to know the people, your way around town, you know, where to eat, how to eat, how to cross the street is a big deal. You know, they stopped drawing uh, lane lines on uh, freeways and highways because cars just ignored them anyway. When I was living there at night, you know, cars wouldn't, uh, drivers wouldn't turn on their headlights because some actually believe that you got uh poor gas mileage if you turned on your headlights. And so there were all kinds of accidents associated <laughs> with that. I remember <laughs> getting in an argument with a guy who was talking about, you know, how could you say these things about my my wonderful city? It's just as modernized as as New York City. And then I pointed to a, uh, a, a horse-drawn cart uh, on a freeway ramp, just kind of merging onto the freeway. And, you know, so it, there's so much going on there. Um, but it's also like the center of 
you know, the, the Arab world's entertainment industry, at least from a film standpoint, I know, you know, from an economic standpoint, you're looking at the Gulf, but, you know, you're at a place where, you know, you're, you're, you're in Africa and then Sinai is in Asia and you're in the Middle East all at once. And there's just a confluence of so many cultures that, that come together there. And it's, you're right. It's a very overwhelming place. Um, but you could also be anything you want to there. I got to be a college basketball player. Yeah. So the sports piece, yeah, I want to, yeah, but, but, but the taking advantage of part, like part of, I've never been to, that was my first time in a place that was, I think it was probably considered like an Arab state. Yeah. Like, or, and um, a few things stuck out to me that were like eye-opening, you know, like one was uh, there's a lot of aggression in how people talk. Mm. So it's like, it's just regular talk. But when they're talking English, it's like this, there's such like definitiveness to what they're saying. It's kind of like, oh, there's no, sure. yep. and yeah. And the, on top of that, there, one thing that was funny was that like, they would complain about the tip. They would be like, that's way too low. That's right. Like, that's, and I was just like, I'm like, I'll, I'll take, I'll take it back. <laughs> you yeah. Know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You get nada about that. That's right. Back sheesh, back sheesh. Yeah. I, I, the story I always tell is, you know, I, I lived, um, in a, in a part of town where I'd often take a, a taxi to, to campus. And when I first got there, I would pay, uh, five Egyptian pounds um, for for the taxi ride, and if I gave them five pounds, and they'd ask for seven, ten, or fifteen, and because I was paying five, they knew I didn't know the price, so they would ask for more. After I lived there for a while, I would pay two Egyptian pounds, and no one would ever say anything to me. So if I would pay five, they would say, "Give me ten, give me 15. If I paid two, they just drive away. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the one, one other thing was that like, you know, for, for men that are friends, they hold hands. That's right. And so this, you know, I probably could have read an article and saw this, but I just kind of <laughs> like, I just saw it when I was there. So it was just like, um, a lot of men holding hands and I know in the Arab state, like, you know, that's not like, I, it wasn't romantic. Right. That's right. That's so, right. You have more to say about that, or that's just kind of like <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it was it was interesting to see in a place that is extremely homophobic, and um, and I and, and I think you know homophobic activity, at least when I lived there, I believe was illegal, and so to to mm -hmm. to, to know that and then see men walking down the street with big smiles on their hands, uh, big smiles on their faces, holding hands, just didn't seem to fit with that that dynamic. But it right. wasn't romantic at all. It was just mm -hmm. what 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 friends did, which was was cool. And and the kissing, right? You know, men mm -hmm. um, kissing each other, two two kisses on the cheek uh, after a handshake. Yeah, and the, and so the, and the other thing was that the um, it was really easy to get lost. Yeah, it just was like it was. It's a tough city. It's like you shouldn't go there alone. You know, <laughs> not for safety, but yep. so you can really just kind of like get around you know what I'm yeah what i what i recommend and again man i i lived there in 98 99 so so uh -huh. a very long time ago and I, I i haven't been back i i hope to take my my family there when my kids get older um and things are hopefully settled down in the region 
But what I, what I tell people is if you're going to be there for under two weeks, overpay for a guide, be willing to pay the tourist prices, just enjoy yourself, see everything, kind of do a little elevated you know, trip because it's still so much cheaper than anything you would do day to day here. Like you can go stay at a super luxurious resort um, on the Red Sea and it's, you know, it's probably $40 a night at, at the resort type thing. So like, you know, if you're paying what might be triple the local price, it still, you know, comes out to just a few dollars here and there. So I, I say kind of don't worry about that. And then if you're going to be there longer, then you can sort of integrate into the norms of the city. But it can be very frustrating if, you know, you feel like you're being taken advantage of and you're trying to fight that if you're just there for for a short period of time. You got to remember, right, like you're you're in a developing country, you know, folks just don't have there's there's no such thing as a middle class. You you either are very wealthy for the local standards or or you're in poverty and you know a couple bucks from us here and there goes a whole long way there because you know i talk about the difference between you know two pounds and and five egyptian pounds when i was there one pound was was like um uh, three three pound it was like three and a half pounds to the u.s dollar mm -hmm. so we're just talking you know a few cents between two and five pounds and it's like at the end of the day what, what are we really talking about that's a good perspective because like the you know if you go if you go there like an american and you're trying to like uh you know you have expectations on how to be spoken to and like that's right <laughs> which is what <laughs> i had that's right you know? that's um, right yeah yeah so that's 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 a good perspective i want to fast forward a little bit i want i want to start, start talking about your career uh and their family how many how many kids do you have I have two. I have a son who is two and a half and a daughter who is almost six months. So you had a you had a pandemic baby. I had a pandemic baby. Yeah. <laughs> she is super chill, man. What's your uh, kids' names? Uh, Shino uh, is my son's name. And um, my my wife's um, grandfather, uh, his, his last name was Shinozaki and he was, uh, actually a kamikaze pilot in world war II, um, who, uh, fortunately did not have to fulfill his mission before the end of the war. Um, but his best friend was killed during the war. They made a pact that if, uh, one were to fall, the other would take care of the other's family. And so not only did he, take care of his best friend's family. He married his, his best friend's uh, sister and took their last name. So mm -hmm. the last name of Shinozaki left the family. And so we named our son Shino to kind of bring that back into the family. And, mm -hmm. and my daughter's name is uh, Emiko. Emiko? Yeah, E-M-I-K-O. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your wife is Japanese? She's half, half Japanese, uh, half Taiwanese. Her, her mother's from Japan nice. and her father's from Taiwan. Nice. She's from LA. Have you read um, Miyamoto? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I just I have I have the book and I started the novel, and um, I was like running through it. It was like at first when I first got it, it was like really hard for me to kind of focus on, and then I yeah. got into it, and it's like a beautiful story. So yeah. all right, so what you said? Oh yeah, do you have a story about the novel? Are you talking about the the collection of short stories or? 
I'm talking about the extended uh, novel. Um, I think it's called, it's either Miyamoto or, or my my shushi. I'm going to grab it right now because we're okay. talking about <laughs> Yeah, yeah, go grab it because we uh, might be talking about different books. You know what? I, Musha- you said Musashi. Miyamoto and I was thinking, oh no, I haven't read that. I, I thought you were talking about this one actually. <laughs> so okay. No, yeah, I think the character's name, there's something, something about a Miyamoto in here somewhere. Maybe it's okay. one of the characters' name, but Musashi. You read this one you said? I haven't, no. Okay. Yeah, it's like the um it's kind of like gone with the wind as the as the introduction describes of this book. Okay. It's like one of the most um it's a, it's a very important story to like Japanese culture and it's a story of like a samurai that um that you know, sort of like a a a killer without morals and gets imprisoned and then studies the art of war like sort of becomes a philosopher and then embarks mm. on this journey to be a samurai oh wow and so, no i haven't read it yeah it's a good it's, it's, it's a good one because when you're talking about the story of the um of your of your wife's great regards grandfather or great-grandfather grandfather grandfather yeah so the, yeah. the honor you know like there's like a lot of honor and like oh yeah um, weight in that story and it reminded me of the novel because there are huge overtones of that um so that's dope that's dope yeah yeah and i fortunately got to meet him uh before before he passed which was which was great you have two kids and went over their names so um did you go to grad school i'm gonna, I'm gonna mute I, this while you talk yeah i did i um i i took that that PPIA grant and went to NYU. Um, actually, I went there to study public health because I, you know, was sort of following in my my, my father's footsteps, but I had an, an interest in international public health. Um, and with my experience in the Middle East and studying Arabic, I was looking to do something there. And then two weeks after getting to NYU, uh, the towers went down. So folks with an interest and a background in studying Middle East were no longer of interest for, you know, economic and kind of humanitarian causes, uh, more so for national security causes, which wasn't something that I was particularly interested in. You know, the irony of that was I, at, at the time I was also accepted to a, a fellowship with the Navy and all I had to do was go signed my my papers on September 12th, uh, 2001. And that building was destroyed during the attack the day before. Um, you know, this was a time of peace. You know, when I when I got dropped off to to get on that plane to go to NYU, like my dad was, you know, gave me a hug at the gate in the in the airport, right? Like how long ago is that? You know, just the thought of that, right? And so I pivoted uh pretty quickly after after that, um, particularly after getting some calls from some of the national security uh, groups and agencies that were recruiting. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I knew I had a love of cities and I was at this, uh, this program at NYU that was a, a master's in public administration. And so there were a number of, of paths to take. So I pivoted to, to public finance and I started taking like urban economics courses and economic development courses and, focusing my internships with community development corporations. I worked for one called the Bridge Street Development Corporation that was um, 
rehabbing old brownstones and bedsty and selling them as affordable housing with uh, also an economic development uh, component that those brownstones came with basement apartments that could be rented out. So you're spending $250,000 at the time to get a beautiful, brand new, completely gutted rehab brownstone that also had an apartment that you can rent out that, of course, you know, if you were to sell it now, it would probably be worth, you know, $2.5 million. Um, and uh, when I finished there, I went to work for the NE Casey Foundation in, in Baltimore. Um, and actually, that's where I first met uh, Fred Blackwell, who, who runs the uh, San Francisco Foundation. Um, this was in 2003. He was working for the foundation, leading their initiative in, in, in Oakland. And I was a uh, part of this uh, program, assistantship uh, program that the foundation had. And I was focusing on neighborhood level investments in Indianapolis under their, their neighborhood initiative. And then I had a, the opportunity to, to work for this really cool nonprofit that unfortunately isn't around anymore called the Social Compact, which was doing these innovative alternative market analyses of underserved communities to actually show how strong the local economics were, what the purchasing power was, what's the informal economy, how many people really live there because people in our communities oftentimes don't get counted by the census. And we were able to show these more in-depth analyses of these micro locations to help at the time. You know, this was this was uh, pre-global financial crisis. So at the time when banks and retailers were uh, going into emerging markets in the communities that that they had basically ignored for for generations, um, and then I got invited to join a fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, which is really what what started my my career in urban development. Um, and it was again a, an amazing program that unfortunately isn't around anymore. But it was called the Center for Urban Redevelopment Excellence where we would spend a semester on campus at Penn taking affordable housing finance classes at Wharton with the business school students. We were taking urban planning classes with the architecture students. We were taking um, land use with the law students. There was a series of classes where innovative urban developers would come and speak to us every week. And then we got placed with developers around the country that were doing innovative things in urban redevelopment. And so I was placed with McCormick Baron Salazar, which is headquartered in St. Louis, which also happens to be the city which my father grew up in. So I had a lot of family there and it was mm. great experience. Mm. Um, and then some of my cohorts um, went to, to, to other developers around the country. Um, the local folks who had participated in that program in the past, like John Stewart participated, Bridge had participated, Midpen Housing, a lot of the Bay Area folks related uh, participated. It was just a great program. And then during the first two years of the placement with the developer, um, we'd get together with uh, our cohort and either the previous cohort or the following co cohort to look at innovative things happening in urban redevelopment. We do these study tours every quarter. And it was just a great, you know, kind of grow your network, learn the business, uh, see what's going on around the country and just amazing exposure. and. 
that's really where I kickstarted my my career in real estate. I want to get into housing locally and, and mm-hmm. your your thoughts on where where we're at around housing, sort of what how the market has responded to the um, the pandemic. Yeah, but, uh, you were in New York on nine eleven. I was. And, uh, I saw you know, the, the you said second. that like a few a few iterations ago, but like yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's yeah. it's crazy. Where were you? I saw. Uh, I was in Lower Manhattan. I I lived on Third and Mercer at the time, so I wasn't downtown, but I was you know Third Street in the Village. Uh, saw the second plane hit from the street. Um, I remember the first plane hit. I was sleeping in that day. I got a call from a, a Sudanese friend of mine. Hmm. And just on the other line, she said, I didn't do it. And I said, you didn't do what? She's like, you haven't turned the news on yet? You know, kind of tongue in cheek that, hey, they're going to blame Arabs for that. And I mean, obviously it turned out to be, you know, extremists. Um, but, you know, at the beginning, before folks knew what was going on, you know, she was already just sort of on it, like, you know, kind of joking. I didn't do it. I was like, I didn't do what? And then I turned on the news. I was like, oh man, I got to go. And I ran downstairs. And I remember just kind of looking at the first tower smoking. And I saw the second one hit. And, and I looked around and I saw people were kind of looking at me funny. And I looked and I had slept in a t-shirt that just had a bunch of Arabic writing on it. I mean, it's one of those things you pick up in the market and you were in Egypt. So I'm sure you went to Khan Khalili, which is the old marketplace. And I picked up a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. That in Arabic said animish eyes, which just means I don't want because, you know, everyone's trying to sell you stuff. And so it's like, I don't want gold. I don't mm-hmm. want silver. Mm-hmm. I don't want all this stuff. But, you know, people don't read Arabic. They don't, they don't know what it says. People kind of looking at me. And I'm like, let me go and let me change my shirt. Um, and then a friend of mine who was from Kuwait, uh, but she was a it was she was Kuwaiti, but she grew up in New York City viewed herself as a New Yorker. Her father was the uh, Kuwaiti ambassador to the UN. Um, uh, we got together. We actually walked down uh, toward kind of where everything was was happening and, you know, did the whole kind of rooting on the first responders and, and all of that stuff, not having an appreciation of, you know, a lot of those folks that we were rooting on uh, were, were, were not coming back. And it just, it was a crazy time. And then basically for the next, I forget if it was two to four weeks, uh, vehicle traffic was shut down from 14th Street all the way south from there. And I lived on 3rd Street. So I could walk down Broadway in my neighborhood and there's no cars, Mm. you know, and it's smoky still. And, Mm. you know, we see people walking around with masks now because of the pandemic, but that's, that's what it was like down there because we were still dealing with um, all of the aftermath uh, associated with that. And so, you know, that huge disaster had a major impact on, on my life and career, because if it happened later, I would have ended up doing that Navy fellowship, which after grad school, you know, when I was signing up, I was thinking, Hey, see the world. We're at peace. We have, you'll, you'll be, an administrator at a hospital in Barcelona or Tokyo, or then you get all these officers benefits to now nah, we we're at war. And there was a brother who I studied with in, in Cairo. Great guy. Um, he enlisted in the army 
after he graduated from college because he wanted to get his student student loans paid. And he was like, all they're going to do is send me to the Monterey Defense Language Institute to, to study Arabic and, you know, then I'll be out and it'll be great. And they pulled him out of language school. They put him in interrogator school and then they sent him to Afghanistan. And he was part of, you know, those those initial wave. Then when we invaded Iraq, he was there. He had all these crazy photographs when he came back of like Saddam Hussein palaces and this, that, and the other, and ended up having a great career in the oil business. Um, but, you know, he wasn't planning on going to war. Right. I mean, it's just that that one day just sort of changed the trajectory of of so many folks. Um, and those are the fortunate folks who, who didn't lose their lives that that day. Do, do you speak Arabic? Not really. I mean, okay. I could order some food. I could uh-huh. tell my taxi driver where to go, but uh, it's not, I, I wasn't, I, I studied it at Berkeley. Uh-huh. I studied it in Egypt. I studied it in Morocco. Um, but I would by no way say that I was proficient. Do you speak any other languages? Unfortunately, no. I've studied French. I've studied Spanish. I just never had uh, an affinity for any of them sticking. I can yeah. get around a little bit, but not right. not a strong proficiency at all. Yeah, that's me. That's me with French and Spanish too. Like I studied yeah. French. I studied abroad in France. Oh wow! Was, where where did you study? I was I was in Paris. I went. I was at the La Sorbonne. Oh, wow! You studied at the Sorbonne. Yeah, but I took like a spat. It's no, don't, don't be impressed. I'm impressed, man. I'm impressed. I gotta be, man. I took a French class at the Sorbonne, and it was, you know, I was placed with the program that, you know, placed us in particular classes. Sure. But the benefit for my program in my school was that you can do an immersive language program while you're there because most people yeah. have to study it before they went. They had to like have, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, and I kept, I keep trying to learn Spanish. I haven't let go of trying to learn Spanish. <laughs> when was the last time you were in Paris? Studying abroad. That was 2007. I think you probably appreciated even more being a little bit older, man. That I don't know if there's a more beautiful urban environment than Paris. Mm-hmm. In terms of cities, you know, mm-hmm. um, I just, I just love it. I can walk for miles and miles in that city. It, it's just so beautiful to me. Yeah, it is a very beautiful city. It was a, it was like, it was a trip being there because, you know, some of the realizations we we haven't talked a lot. We talked a lot about culture and some about race, but um, the issue of race in France for the black people that live in, in Paris is like, it's, it's really a trip Yeah, because um, this was like, I, I was there during election year where Sarkozy was elected. Mm-hmm. I think that's his name. Yeah. And, Nicolas Sarkozy. Yeah. And whenever, whenever there's an election year, immigration is always like a, a national topic. Yeah. And so immigration at the time was kind of like, you know, Africans are a drain on our economy. Mm. In the same way that Americans do that to people from Central America, like you know, that's right. Yeah, Mexicans are taking our jobs. Like that's like the yeah bigoted narrative here. That was like that's that was the case for Africans in France. Yeah, and but the but the history of racism isn't really established or like given weight in France. It's much more pervasive here. There's a lot more. It's much more political correctness here. 
like they 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 were of the opinion that they didn't see race right <laughs> they were race you know yeah. you see you hear that yeah. come from some people in america like i don't see race I know. but then and, then, and the white the white parisians were like yeah race is not a problem here like i just i just see a person like i don't see it and, but yeah then, sure but they had no black representation in any of the government agencies there were sure. no the only black people on tv were criminals like there were no yep. you know and and the sensitivity around like not saying certain things wasn't just wasn't like a thing so yeah the other thing about the french is that they treat uh you like you like the way that americans will make fun of somebody with an accent like if mm -hmm. you you're Chinese, learn, and you have a Chinese accent speaking English, or sure. the French do that if you don't speak French, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they like, they look down at you or you're dumb because Absolutely. you have proficiency in the language. So, so whenever I fix my mouth to like bash them, I just related how we are to the Americans. How sure, <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, it's, you know, man, I, this, this world, and you look at Europe and it's, it, how can I put it? You know, it, the, the the treatment of of South Asians in uh, in England, Arabs in France, Turks in Germany. You know, it's and and the irony is in all those places, it's where and just like here, I mean, you know, our ancestors were enslaved and brought here, and then we get looked down upon and treated <laughs> as if we're doing something to them mm -hmm. as if we came here in search of a better life and you know the the french empire you know expanded in the throughout north and west africa and so they do the same to those folks and you know mm -hmm. the brits you know they they colonized the the indian subcontinent and all the countries that have since kind of broken up from from that and and then those are the folks who live in public housing in those major cities, right? I mean, it's it's the same narrative all over the world, man. So you you were there in 9-11. You've had this whole career around housing. Um, you're now in real estate. What, where do you work currently? Yeah, so I'm a managing director for the West Coast at Jonathan Rose Companies, which is a company that's headquartered in, in New York City. It's a real estate development company that's really focused on affordable housing development and the preservation of affordable housing. Uh, the company's been around 30 plus years and really built its reputation on being a, an innovator of sustainable building and green building and was an early adopter and continues to kind of push the envelope on, on that. Uh, in October, we closed our fifth uh, preservation fund for preserving affordable housing. Uh, it's $525 million that we can leverage with traditional or agency debt without using tax credits or tax exempt bonds to acquire existing affordable housing that's in danger of losing its, its status as affordable housing or something that I'm really excited about uh, for the Bay Area market is being able to compete against some of the larger institutional players who who buy rent control properties and then look to bring up the rents to market we can be just as competitive by partnering with nonprofit organizations to create a structure that allows us to uh, cap 
rent uh, and put restrictions on at 80% of the area's median income and below. And we can also tier it to lower incomes. And by in return getting a property tax exemption, we can pay just as much for those buildings as the folks that are want to take everything to market. And so I'm really excited about being able to do that execution in the Bay Area and in places like Los Angeles, where we're we're losing affordable housing, you know, every every year as well as needing to to build more. So I get to build new affordable housing as well as preserve existing affordable housing. The affordable housing aspect of development, like it, it is, um, is is a popular discussion. Housing is is big, right? In this in our region. That's right. Yep. And, and you know, in my brief attempt at supervisor, one of my like are, are we able to talk about that a little more? Because I, I must admit I was very disappointed when I saw that email that you were uh deciding not to uh run after all. Yeah, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. <laughs> I, re- I I really I really want to know because I you know it, the funny thing is you know, you and I would bump into each other in the city in kind of random places. I think I forget, I remember the first two times we met, but I'm not sure which one happened first. But then I knew I was like the fact that I saw you in both of those spaces. I was like, I need to, I need to know this cat. Um, I think the first time we were invited to a dinner in the Fillmore with a bunch of other black folks uh in in this who are living in the city doing things from arts to education to business and everything in between and it was a really cool get together and then the next time i bumped into you was at an elementary school in the bayview when i was reading to, it was like the 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 annual kind of read to a class day and i'm like okay you're here too okay you uh-huh. know uh-huh. And then, you know, from there, I saw you were running for something. I remember bumping you in the BART and you'd be like, man, you need to ask me for money. Let me, <laughs> let me support your campaign. I just I just want you to text me and say, please support my campaign and I'm going to send you some money. Uh-huh. And so I was, you know, I, when I saw you were running for supervisor, I was excited and I was waiting for that text or that call. And then I got the email that you were stepping away and I was I was really disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for donating. And, and, you know, and I, and I appreciate it. That's why I was, that was my intro. It's very, man, it's very generous. <laughs> and, yeah. And um, yeah, I think it was the wise men. Um, it could have been that, or it could have been like the thing that I did with Tyra and Charles at the art gallery. Um, That's what, yeah, that was, I, I know Tyra, I, mm-hmm. I, I remember Tyra was there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, yeah. she grew up a Baha'i as well. I don't know if you knew that about her. She grew up where? A, a, a Baha'i, the same religion that I that I am. Oh no, I didn't know that. No, I know she grew. Yeah, up, yeah. I think okay, she grew up in D.C. I want to get into the religion too because I, I I'm actually not yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. But, um, I want to learn more about it. Um, when I won the school board race in 2016, I had, um, you know, I I had aspirations to do more, but it was interesting because as I was on the school board, I was also running a nonprofit called Mission Bit, which, you know, my first two years on the school board were kind of a blur because running that nonprofit took everything from me. You know, it was like, it was like, it took, it was a lot of energy and focus and, and it ended up paying off. But one of the things that I realized, I think with the way that my race panned out, um, I decided late 
to actually run for supervisor. Okay. And I think that if uh, if you're running for an office, you should like do it. You should you should start, kind of lay the groundwork, mm-hmm. right? So the groundwork or what it takes to be successful on the school board is not really connected to what it takes to have a viable um, supervisor campaign. And Got it. The one of the the major gaps with that is just being more present in the neighborhood, right? Because like, I can mm-hmm. be like, so people can do that strategically. They can, they can uh, have more, f- more of an emphasis on the schools in the area where you want to be supervisor. Yeah. Or you can go to more community events, but because I grew up in my, my, my family's been here since the forties. Right. So I right. have like all this historic context to the neighborhood. And if the, had the pandemic not started, I wouldn't have, I would have, I would have kept running what the pandemic did to the campaign was, you know, I decided to run in January. We launched in February, everything shut down mid March. Right. Yeah. You know, at the time raising money from like March till May was just like, you know, everyone was struggling. Like no one was raising money and I was trying to unseat an incumbent Mm -hmm. who who had just got elected, who was only going to be there for a year. So the calculation for me was um, who and who is the the incumbent? The incumbent is Dean Preston. The quick backstory behind that was, you know, when the area I was running for supervisor, the mayor was supervisor of this neighborhood. She was she was supervisor. Oh yeah, of course. And then she became mayor. Yep. She, she was going to she had to appoint her replacement, and I was on her short list for being appointed. Okay. She ended up selecting Valley Brown. Yep. And the way our elections work here is if there's a if there's an appointment, it triggers triggers a special election. Mm-hmm. So you don't finish the person's term. You have to run for the seat as soon as the Got next it. term. So the mayor becomes London becomes mayor in 2018. She selects um Valley Brown to replace her. Valley has to run in November of 2019 to finish the term, which ends 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, Valley Brown loses to Dean Preston, which was like, really like, there's a whole story behind that. Yeah. My initial attempt to run should have been that cycle. I should have run against Valley and Dean for the seat. Now, Dean had just beat Valley fair and square, and now he had to run again in a year to keep a four-year term. So, so he won in November. I decided in January to run against them. Launched in February. And so, you know, everyone was kind of like, didn't we just have a race? And all the people that really liked me yeah. liked him. So they okay. were like, oh, I can't help you because we we uh, kind of just helped them win. Right. Why we want to lose. But I was like, I want the job. I don't care if he won. I want the job. Right. right. And so um it would have been so if if I if I had the even if I didn't have the money, if I had the the time and space to just like get in front of people, yeah, I could have been competitive. But door knocking, handing out flyers, getting signatures, sure. like all that's done. None of that's yeah. happening. Yeah. You know, and and the the deadline for me. This is probably a long, really long answer, but it's the first time. No, I, I, I honestly, I've, I've had this question floating since I got that email. So this is, I'm <laughs> glad to finally get the story. 
well, so, you know, March, everything shuts down. In May, we have to start to file to be on the ballot for November. So I'm going to be, you know, I have to I have to decide, like, is it worth it to try and ask people to keep, keep helping me? I don't know how long this is going to go. I don't have, you know, everything was stalled for a few months. I can't run the type of race that I want to run to really be competitive. That May, June deadline of being on the ballot, I decided I would cut my losses and uh, not continue. And so that's that's what ended up like prompting the decision. So what ended up happening is that's that very same day that I stopped, by coincidence, uh, Valley re-entered the race to run against Dean again. And in November, he beat her again. Yeah. So, in the in that the race in 2019, it was close. He won by like 200 votes. Man, that's close. In this one, he, it was like nowhere near close. So he'll be supervisor unless for some reason something happens from now until 2024. Do you have your eyes set on 24? Not not right now. And I, and housing is one of the reasons, which is which is um, what I want to get into you. Want to, sure. want to get into it with you because as I was running for supervisor, um, you know, pathways to home ownership was one, one of the things I really want to talk about. Yeah. And we talked to longstanding black residents, especially uh, people that have seen people get pushed out or what, whatever the case may be, long-term uh, tenants or long-term, like, yeah, long-term residents of public housing. The The sentiment is... Uh, we should, why can't we own this place, right? Mm -hmm. And we just want to stay here. What's the, why can't we just like uh, have a mortgage instead of rent? Mm -hmm. And so there, there are these various different types of, you know, lending practices that help people get long, get, get homes. Yeah. And, the discussion around development, really right now, most of what I hear about development is uh, below market rate, and but the the owner the, the the ownership opportunities with some of those units or homes isn't at all like it seems like there's no real advantages. As it becomes a yeah, I think the city's program is focused more on. A, shared equity structure to to be able to keep the long-term affordability versus focusing on the fact that you know in the history of our country the biggest transfer of wealth from generation to generation has been through home ownership and when for example my my grandfather came back from fighting in world war ii as a buffalo soldier and the gi bill while the white folks who came back got to use that GI Bill to buy a house in a neighborhood that would appreciate, we were redlined out of those opportunities. And so we could only buy homes in places like East Cleveland, for example, that had no opportunity to grow in value. And so that wealth transfer to the next generation couldn't happen. And now that we can legally buy in these neighborhoods, it's for the majority of us a false right because we didn't have the benefit 
of that generational wealth passing down to be able to afford to buy in these neighborhoods. Yeah, so you're, you're very familiar with the history and you've lived it like I have. And um, and so the big policy question is like, why can't we figure out a way to to get people in the homes, right? So with, but with the affordable housing work that you do, um, it sound, it's what you briefly described sounds really uh, amazing. What is your general uh, description of what's happening? What is your commentary of what's happening in the Bay around housing? There, there was pre-pandemic dynamics, right? And then there's post-pandemic dynamics. And whenever I have a conversation about how expensive housing is in the Bay Area, I do like to remind people that back in 2010, I would say 2009, 2010, into 2011, there were all kinds of foreclosures and short sales and uh, heavily discounted houses on the market during that time. Now, of course, to benefit from that, you had to have cash and a lot of people didn't have jobs at that point. And so again, when I talk about kind of false right, but you know, it was also a period in time where you could buy you know, in 2011, you could buy a two-bedroom, two-bath condo in downtown Oakland for $215,000. That existed mm-hmm. as as recently as as, as 2011. Hmm. Um, you know, I I was I was renting uh, a, 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 when I first came back to the Bay Area after moving from St. Louis. I was actually living right across the street from uh, now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris on a, a small alley street in Soma on Clara between fifth and sixth. And um, I was renting a place, uh, but I remember there were so many uh, foreclosure, foreclosures and short sales of, of those loft buildings and condos and folks trying to get out of them at, at prices that if we saw today, we'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, now it's, you know, at the prices that, that BMR units would, would go, go to. So, you know, this stuff is cyclical. It never feels like it when you're in it. And we are absolutely in a, in a, in a crisis, particularly pre-pandemic, where we went generations, basically, without building new housing at all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that took away a lot of, of, of opportunity. I'm, I'm someone who firmly believes it's not uh, development that that causes displacement that it's the lack of development that causes displacement and the analogy that i give folks is if we're going to have all these tech jobs and all these finance jobs and we're going to be this big employment center and we're not going to build the housing to allow those folks to live close by and all the services that that go along with it and one person has $3,000 a month to pay for pay rent for their apartment, but there's no $3,000 a month houses, but someone who's been living in a $1,500 a month apartment, but, I, but this other person has $3,000 and can give that person $3,000 to live there, then the $1,500 person is gonna lose their, their place. But if, the $3,000 unit was built, that $3,000 person wouldn't be taking away that $1,500 apartment. 
And so that's why we really need to, and I'm, and I'm someone I've, I've built thousands of, of units for, for people earning, you know, below 50% of the area median income down to for housing for people who have $0 income, mm-hmm. where we give them a check every month so that they can pay their utility bills. I mean, that's, that's the breadth of, of housing that I've built my, my career on. And I haven't been someone, I, I, I did work in the, equity world for a while where we were doing market rate investments there but the bulk of my career has been building affordable housing but we really need housing across the board and the irony now and i i sit here in the east bay over the next three years the city of oakland i believe is going to deliver about six thousand units of of rental housing so we basically didn't build anything for generations now all of a sudden we're delivering all these units at the same time and we're doing it in an era because of the pandemic where these high paying jobs from your facebook's and your googles of the world which was really what was driving the demand first in san francisco then that got to be too expensive so people were moving on the other side of the bridge we're delivering all these units for these workers who are now being told you know what you don't have to be in the region anymore because we're not going to require you to come back to the office. And so we've already seen 20, 30% drops in rent across the board in the more dense areas of the Bay Area, because those with means are able to pick up. And in some cases, they're going as close as Sacramento, where they can buy a house and have a home office and work out of that. And to more extreme cases, they're going to places like Texas and Florida, where they don't have to pay state income tax, right? And so in the short term, we're going to see rents drop um, and it'll be interesting to see if people are able to take advantage of that and get the housing, you know, that's historically not been available. Um, And then over the next few years, as these all of a sudden we get the supply that we've needed for so long, um, you know, there's going to be significant rent drops during that period for the near term. And then the cycle is going to go back again because San Francisco, the city of, 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 of your birth and where you live will always be seven miles by seven miles surrounded by water on three sides and people are going to want to be there. You know, for, for, for a lot of people that, that grow up here, there's this, there's this like struggle to hold on. And it seems like holding on feels like also fighting to hold on. Yeah. And one of the, I think, brilliant things. I'm, I'm not. I've, I talked about Last Black Man in San Francisco before on the podcast. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of the movie. Yeah. One of the things I think they nailed was um, that sentiment, like people are fighting to hold on. But oh, another brilliant thing about it was, um, you know, the the main character is fighting for a home that he thinks his great grandfather built or his grandfather built and who actually didn't build it, you know? So he's, yeah. he's actually fighting for a lie, like yeah. for a story that's a lie, you know? And, and so the, the light bulb for me was like, you know, is, is the fight to hold on a lie, right? Are we mm-hmm. fighting to hold on to something that's not true? Like, like what actual benefits stake ownership, like, do we have over a place and what would it be like to build that somewhere else? You know? Yeah. So, 
Um, yeah. I was already struggling with that that tension, and I think the movie portrayed that. You know, um, so do you want to comment to that before I go on to this other point? Yeah, <laughs> it's you know, San Francisco is such an interesting dynamic, right? Because like New York City, it's it's principally a renter city. You know, when I was doing work in the Bayview, uh, I was I was leading the the redevelopment in a, in a previous job when I was with McCormick Grand Salazar, I was leading the redevelopment of the Alice Griffith community into a mixed income community out in the in, in the Bayview and looking at some of those neighborhood dynamics in sort of the last neighborhood where black people are living in the city of San Francisco, also the neighborhood with the highest home ownership rates. You know, what do you do if you've been a homeowner in a neighborhood that has really suffered under disinvestment for multiple generations and things are changing investments coming. So first it was the T line and don't get me started on, you know, <laughs> how long that, that ride takes to get to the Bayview on the T. You know, you might the worst, walk. is the worst. It is, it is the absolute worst. Yeah. But it, but it was, it was a major investment that happened there. You know, you had Lennar slash Five Point, what they're what they've largely done in the the, the shipyard, um, and what's what's trying to be done in, in Candlestick Point. And so investment is coming, change is coming, but you are now a senior citizen and someone knocks on your door and is willing to pay you a million dollars for your house. While us younger black folks might be saying, Hey, hold on to that. That's going to be an asset for your family. It's like, but I've been waiting generations. Like you're telling me I have to wait longer and someone is putting more money than I'll ever see in my lifetime. Like what, what do you, what do you do in that, in that situation? It's, it's a tough one. And, and, and yes, there's the narrative and there's definitely people being priced out and pushed out, but then there's also the people who are just like, you know what? I'm going to take my check. I'm going to buy a house in Antioch with a pool and I'm going to have cash left over for that and more space. And I don't have to deal with everything that I've been dealing with for the past 60 years. Right. And the other, the other um, aspect to that is the condition of the city for how much it costs. That's right. Which, which that's is right. like <laughs> a whole other discussion that that's, uh, that's Pan Bay Area, right? Like uh -huh. that, it's just un it's unbelievable that we can have so much wealth everywhere and so much despair, poverty, homelessness, uh, mental health issues. It, it's it's shameful. Yeah, and so they ask sort of the calculation or the or you know on the on the pro con like hold on, what am I fighting to hold on to? Like right. what is uh and then you start to travel a bit, you know, you go to Houston, Atlanta, DC, right? Young yeah. black man yeah. looking for, you know, a professional community that you can you can tie into. You want to see right. people that represent like love your culture, that re that reflect your values, that like share your interests, and you want to be able to own something. It's like, what am I, what am I, hold on, what? Right. <laughs> you know, it That's all right. starts to become very like, like it doesn't make any sense unless you're holding on to that romantic fighter. Like, you know, it could be some other things that's keeping you here too, but um, yeah. it kind of feels like 
leaving the matrix a little bit, start to open up your eyes and your options. So um, have you lived in any of those, those chocolate cities? I, I, I got a chance to live in DC and that, that was just an amazing experience for me. I haven't, I haven't, I, um, no, I, I'm a frequent traveler okay. to, to some of them, but I've never, you know, I went to college in Massachusetts and I was like on campus in Northwest mass. Yeah. Spent a lot of time. Remind me, work. remind me where you went to school. I went to Williams. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know uh, some guys I grew up uh, swimming with ended up swimming there and playing water polo there. Yeah, water polo. That's a vicious sport. They're yeah, they're kind of mean. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, that that so, but it all kind of comes back to housing and and um, were you following Scott Wiener's bill? Yeah. What, what's your, what's your, can you, are you allowed to comment on that because of your employer or what was? <laughs> oh yeah, abso- ab- absolutely. Okay. I, you know, I, I mean, it's, this is just re- re- reporting facts at, at this point. Mm-hmm. The legislature didn't, the state legislature didn't pass any housing production bills in the last session. So as much as there's uh, an acknowledgement of the housing crisis that we're in, uh, we didn't do anything as a state to actually move forward with being able to address it. Um, and uh, I, the NIMBY issues in, in the Bay Area, maybe it's, it's even beyond the Bay Area, but uh, you know, I'll speak to where we live, are, are pretty ironic in that lower income communities don't want market rate housing, higher income communities don't want affordable housing, mixed income communities perform the best and provide the best outcomes for our community but both sides agree basically that they don't want to live together and so nothing gets built mm-hmm. and that's been sort of the result of our ho- housing policy in the state of california and, and the, the lack of supply that's been delivered over generations and it it really hurts my heart when i see our communities push back on investment coming into them. I, I do believe though that there is um, an opportunity if you if you lead with affordable and mixed income housing of scale in our communities, then you're able to establish additional affordable housing, preserve affordable housing for people in the neighborhood, create some economic activity and then kind of the luxury stuff can follow and then the community can benefit from all of the retail and restaurants and everything else that comes with it. And then you have housing that's in place that will always remain affordable. That's the way that I grew up in this business doing neighborhood revitalization. Hmm. After Hurricane Katrina, we did about a thousand units down there of mixed income housing where we replaced the public housing that was there, we mixed it with additional affordable housing and with market rate housing. Mixed income housing isn't a thing in California. I, I, I think I know why, but it's it's very frustrating. When you know, in in New Orleans, in one development, we did 460 units that were developed in over 100 buildings, and every building had public housing replacement units in it, affordable housing units in it and market rate units in them. There was no physical difference between a unit. If someone 
moved out of a two-bedroom market rate unit the same day that someone moved out of a two-bedroom public housing unit. The next folks who moved in, it might be the public housing uh, family moving into where the market family moved out of and vice versa. Like that to me is the model. And when I came out to the West Coast and we were redeveloping out of Griffith, that's what I preached and preached and preached and said, that's what we're gonna, we should do here. And we weren't able to, 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 to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was absolutely a proponent of uh, Scott Wiener's bill um, and any bill that allows for more housing production because when there's more housing production, like I, I said before with the whole $3,000 versus $1,500, mm -hmm. um, when there's more housing for everyone, then there's less pressure on lower income folks. You say you think you know why. Why? Yeah, so, why? So there's the there's the 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 pessimistic Yusef, and then there's the well maybe it's maybe it's not as bad as that. And I'll I'll give you <laughs> kind of both both sides of it. Um, you know, on on one side, there is such a need for affordable housing that I can appreciate wanting to concentrate resources on the most deeply targeted affordable affordability as possible. So, so I can appreciate that. Um, the, the cynic in me says that it's, it's hard to structure and it's hard to finance. And in California, where you have, you know, market rate for-profit developers over here who don't want to have to do any affordable housing and um, nonprofit uh, affordable housing developers over there who don't want any of those resources going into buildings that have market rate housing, then you have both sides agreeing on the one thing that they shouldn't mix. Um, but I, I, I grew up in this business looking at the impact, the negative impact on urban America that concentrating and not maintaining public housing had in places like St. Louis, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, all these places where we concentrated the, 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 very, the most very low income people in our communities. And we didn't provide the resources necessary to maintain that housing. And they became physically uh, and socially unsafe places that were concentrated that the rest of the cities could kind of turn their backs on. And by providing opportunities for low-income folks to have different norms and living communities where they see, you know, black men putting on a sport coat and going to work or just black men getting up, going to work, I think that that can have a significant impact on some uh, younger folks so that they see that norm. Um and that's why, you know, I really like the, the whole economic integration concept of, of mixed income housing. You, um, and it may sound paternalistic. I, I get that. Like, I, I respect any, any pushback uh, on that. But I, I, I think changing norms and letting folks know what's, what's possible is, is, is a big thing. And providing the affordable housing to first stabilize a family's living situation and then allowing that next generation to grow up and have access to more opportunity and, and, and change their, their family's trajectory is, is a special thing.
And it's not just bricks and sticks. You need the supportive services and wraparound support as well. But the housing is a big part of it. You mentioned, so what, what's the name of the religion you said that you were? Oh, I'm a, a member of the Baha'i faith. Baha'i. Well, so I, I never heard of that, actually. What is, what is Baha'i? Um, basically, we, we believe in progressive revelation where we view Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Krishna, Buddha, Zoroaster, Muhammad, and then our prophets, um, the Bab and Baha'u'llah, all as uh, manifestations of God and prophets of the same God who mm. brought um, the message for the people for that particular period. And it's, it's very progressive uh, religion where there are explicit tenets of uh, racial unity, equality of men and women. Um, it started in Iran, but the first Baha'i uh, was actually a white officer in the Massachusetts 54th, the first black civil war regiment. Mm. Um, and actually my great uncle's grandfather, uh, my great uncle who was a Baha'i, his grandfather fought in that regiment. And that's where my, my family first learned of, of the faith. Uh, my father was a Baha'i. Um, and then he learned the faith from his aunt, who he, his aunt and uncle, who he spent his summers with in Michigan when he was growing up. But most of my family is Christian. My mother was raised uh, Methodist. My my grandmother is a, a faithful uh, member of um, Easter Hill Methodist Church in Richmond, California. And, uh, you know, that side of my family moved out to uh, to the Bay Area so that my grandfather could work in the uh, shipyards in, in San Francisco. And then one day folks came by and said, hey, we're hiring folks for the Richmond shipyards too. And so that's how we ended up in the in the East Bay. But, you know, roots go back to the 40s like uh, like yours to uh, to San Francisco. And so is the the faith something that you still have you're doing with your, your kids or is it? Uh, you know, I haven't really introduced religion yet. Um, religion was, well, my father was Baha'i, my mother Christian and they remained married. Um, I think they argued before I was born how they were going to raise me. And so my dad just said, you can raise him Christian when he's 18. He'll make his own decision. I didn't know about that story. But when I was out in New York at Fordham and I, I turned 18, my, uh, I guess I was 18 my sophomore year. Um, I just called my dad and asked him to send me some books on the Baha'i faith. And I read them and it just really resonated that the, the social progressive message resonated, I would say, initially more than the spiritual side of it, mm -hmm. just to be so explicit about, you know, equality of men and women, racial universe, uh, uh, racial unity, universal education. I mean, these are just things that just made a lot of sense. And then the connection with all of these, you know, global faiths that, hey, we, we're all out here worshiping the same God. And it just was a different message for what the people needed in a particular place or a particular time. So mm -hmm. um, I will definitely teach them uh, the faith as the, the kids get, get older, but I haven't introduced them to it yet. So we, we, we went over a lot of your story. We have the rapid fire aspect of our, of our discussion coming. I appreciate all of your insights and um, your time today. You ready for the rapid fire? Let's do it. Do you meditate? Not enough. What's one book you would recommend? The Black Count by Tom Reese. 
do you have a motto? Yeah, that 80% of the stuff you do in your life probably just requires threshold and 20% requires true focus. So spend 80% on the 20% that matters and 20% on the 80% where you can just check a box. Okay. <laughs> That's a great motto. <laughs> <laughs> what personal weakness can you forgive in someone? All of them. We, we, we all have our, our challenges. Okay, last and final question. The house is on fire. All the family members, all the pets are out. What's the three things you grab? Ooh, I grab uh, the teddy bear from my son's bedroom. That was my teddy bear. <laughs> um, I grabbed my uh, Selmer uh, Mark VI tenor saxophone and I grabbed my uh, Audemars Piguet Royal Oak Extra Thin Jumbo. Okay. <laughs> I just realized we didn't get to talk about the watches. During <laughs> All good, man. All good. <laughs> this is... Yusef Freeman, uh, this is Cook on Monday Morning, the final discussions. I appreciate you for your time. Um, uh, it's awesome hearing more about your story. Uh, thank you again. This was a blast. Thank you. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. Thank you again for listening. And thank you for subscribing. Please do so if you haven't already. I'm grateful for your support. Uh, please share the podcast with a friend. Also, help us grow this community of doers. Please take a minute to also uh, rate and review the podcast on Apple. Leave a comment on YouTube. It really helps people hear about and find what we're doing here. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During the Pandemic. You can check the article in the description box if you want to uh, you know, see how I started this one, the equipment we use, some book recommendations that would be helpful to consider. Check that out when you get a chance. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive impact. Uh, we build strategic partnerships between businesses and government. We recruit diversity talent into high impact roles and we help companies drive impact in the places where they do business. If you'd like to learn more about that, feel free to email me info at stevoncook.com. I'd like to thank the people that make our podcast possible. Our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, David. Our copy editors, Fernando Sico Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both also. I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. Uh, you are our teachers, garbage collectors, uh, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, fire workers, police officers, EMT workers, bus drivers, and nurses. Uh, you are our employers, the people helping create jobs and keeping our economy growing. You are our gig workers. Uh, stocking ourselves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn, 
Uh, shout out to all of our listeners also know on the continent and around the world, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to do so because of you. Until we meet again. Peace, peace, and be out.